Have you ever heard the term Christianese? If you haven't, Christianese is the unique language that Christians use and understand, but one that's completely lost on like everyone else. Like, let me give you a few examples of, of, of phrases that we use in Christian life, Christian circles, that just get lost in translation. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. Kind of a common, common phrase that we use around church circles. We, we kind of, with a biblical context, understand what the blood of the Lamb and the importance of being washed in that is. But if you're, if you're without the context, that's a really bizarre, almost semi-cultish type of phrase. Fruit of the Spirit. Is the Spirit a tree that yields fruit? How about the phrase born again? To be born again. Like even in the Bible, the first character introduced to that phrase, Nicodemus, was a bit confused. Jesus, to be born again, you mean like I need to like, that just seems physiologically impossible. How am I born again? How about the phrase to guard your heart? Like what does that mean? Like we get it in the Christian sense, Christianese, to be an armor bearer or to have a quiet time or to be a baby Christian. Now, if you hear the phrase baby Christian, you think of maybe a baby that's a Christian, but, but we use that in a totally different contact, context. How about fire insurance? Christianese means something different in our circles than it does really everywhere else. A hedge of protection. We use that, but what in the world does that mean? (laughs) How about this, missional. Don't Google it, but that has a totally different meaning in the world than it does in in Christian circles. What about old man, the old man? If you watch Sons of Anarchy, that has a totally different meaning than it does in, in church circles. The old man, who I was before Christ, the old man is, well, in the world, Joe. The old man, right? Sorry, brother. Appreciate it. To ask Jesus into your heart. How does that, how does that work, right? Or to be unequally yoked. <laughs> That's another phrase you just you don't hear typically used in common circles. Or to have a stumbling block. Or to love on people. Or my personal favorite, when, when someone says, I'm on fire. You're on fire? That's dangerous. You know, aside from these phrases, Christianese also presents itself in specific words, like vernacular that we use in church, but that's, that's lost on the majority of culture. Like it's only on the, the rarest of occasions that you'll find yourself bumping in to words like justification or sanctification or propitiation or redemption or atonement used in everyday conversations. And and while it's true that you may be able to kind of just chop that up to the fact that these are are long words and that they have a religious connotation, there is one word, one word that you would would kind of say is Christianese, but it's not a long word. And you're going to kind of scratch your head when, when I mention it meaning something different to us than the rest of the world. And that is the word joy. It's interesting. Joy. You'll be hard-pressed to find the word joy used in daily speech. Like the very notion of there existing an inner joy that transcends an emotional experience, that is a foreign concept to the world around us. As a matter of fact, data actually proves my point. 
Since the early 1800s, the disappearance of the word joy from our common English lexicon has been gradual, but weirdly steady. I want to introduce you to something that you might not have heard of. Have you, have you heard of Google Books' as Ngram viewer? Have you heard of this? Because Google has now digitalized over 15 million manuscripts dating back hundreds of years, social scientists have created an algorithm that allows you to trace the frequency of words and how they're used in literature throughout time. Now, what makes Ingram Viewer so revolutionary is that the site acts as a kind of cultural seismograph measuring the trends of society following particular words. The graft that this viewer ends up producing, it looks almost identical to that of an earthquake. You'll see a tremor with a rise and then a peak, followed by a, a fall, maybe an aftershock, etc. It's very interesting. As a dear friend of mine uh, observed when we were talking about this, he said, language is culture. Like the two are specifically intertwined. Like, let me give you a few examples, and we're going to put some, some images on the screen. I want to show you. The word internet. The word internet was never used until it popped onto the scene at the very end of 1970s. It was very rarely used through the 80s to 1990, but it's since, as you can see on the graph, its usage over 15 million manuscripts Dating all the way back to 1800 to 2008, you can see the, the immediate shift, how it's taken off to dominate culture. The word atomic. Interesting. See where it peaks? Late 50s, early 60s. Now that makes total sense, right? Because of what we know is happening within the culture. Use of the word millennials was also non-existent, virtually non-existent, until its first use in 1996. The frequency from that point forward becomes obviously more common. We enter the millennial generation. The word Google. Google entered our lexicon in 1998. How about this for you beer lovers? Microbrew. Microbrew ends up being introduced in 1990 before experiencing a quick rise over the next decade. It's since kind of actually tapered off. Like, this is such a cool site. At the bottom of c316.tv, I've included a link to it. Please don't spend your time this morning doing your own research. Just, by the way, on a, on a side, not really related to the Bible study per se, but, but three more words that I found interesting as it relates to the radical shifts and transformations occurring in our culture. The word porn the word porn explodes onto the scene in the 1970s and doesn't slow down since. That's amazing. Additionally, the phrase gay marriage, as well as the word transgender, almost identical. The words don't exist at all in the lexicon until the 1990s, and then it takes a dramatic jump over the next 20 years. It's a very interesting site. Now, out of curiosity, I wanted to see how the word joy has been used since the 1800s. If we could show the slide. This is, this is the use of the word joy since 1800. Now, it's interesting. You'll notice 
that from its peak during the 1830s, the word joy has experienced a steady decline through 2000. As mentioned, it's a fact that the word joy is literally no longer as popular as it once was. Now, students of history, you have any idea what actually happened in the 1830s? It was the Second Great Awakening, where hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in England and America were giving their life to Jesus Christ in droves. Literally, you can see the revival by just tracking one word, pinpointing back to the 1830s. Very interesting. And yet, it's clear by looking at the, the graph that the, the decline in the use of the word joy has been real, but an unexpected shift has recently taken place. If you expand the search of joy from 1800, not to 2000, but to 2008, you see something that happens at the very tail end. It's actually quite, quite obvious. Uh, here's a better view, specifically focusing on 2000 to 2008. You'll notice a very dramatic, sharp uptick occurs. For 150 years, the use of the word joy has been in steady decline until the last 15 or 20 years. Now, that's, that's interesting, right? Why the renewed interest in joy? Here's my theory. I am convinced a culture that has been afforded almost every license for people to pursue individual happiness has in turn left that society completely empty. Though we've bought into the idea that happiness is the ultimate pursuit of man, many people have discovered that once happiness is finally achieved, only misery ensues. Now, I can't speak to bygone eras but I can speak of today's culture. The more I rub shoulders with non-Christians, secular people, the more evident it is how deeply satisfied and miserable people really are. Now there's a facade, there's a happy-go-lucky face, but when you really get to know people, get involved in people's lives, you, you, once you strip away the superficial, you'll, you'll notice that people are lonely and many people are depressed. For proof of this reality, look no further than the astounding increase in antidepressant drug use. A new report that was cited in August 15, 2017 article in Time, citing a study done by the National Center for Health Statistics, this is what it shows. From 2011 through 2014, close to 13%, that's one in six Americans, 12 years and older, took antidepressants in a month. One in six Americans took antidepressants. Now that number is up 11% from 2005 and has increased twofold from the 6.8% recorded in 1999. You see an uptick in joy, but a downtick when it comes to depression. Now, now, why is this? I don't want to get overly philosophical this morning, but I'm of the opinion that evidence suggests a culture 
whereby everything, all things are presented as true, ends up being a society whereby nothing ends up being true, and life is perceived as meaningless. Now, now, now follow me. If everything is true, then by, by default, nothing is true. And if nothing is true, then is there a point? It's a logical progression on how we process things. You see, the progressive challenge of traditional norms over the last 60 years, the pop cultural exhortation to just do whatever you believe feels good, coupled with the normalization and indoctrination of the theory of man's biological evolution, has fostered. It's yielded, it's produced, it's created a new generation that is grappling with the very question, the fundamental question of meaning and purpose in life. If everything is true, if the world tells me everything is true, if it's true for me, it's true for me, if it's true for you, it's true for you, then there's nothing that's true. And if nothing's true, we are all screwed. Do I have a, is there a point to life? Is there meaning? And these are the things that I honestly believe our generation is dealing with, grappling with. And yet here's the reality. If you examine trends of history, you will discover that anytime a society exchanges absolutes for relative truths, there ends up being one of three results. One, either people become nihilistic and give up hope, which then yields apathy, which ensues in chaos. Two, people double down and grow narcissistic, whereby self-consumption trumps the greater good. Or three, people engage in a renewed quest for meaning. Now, there is no question that we see elements of the first two across our society. Recent pop culture has demonstrated a very interesting love affair with nihilism. Like you will see the cover of this book in TV and movies, even in a Jay-Z rap video. Our pop culture has a weird fascination with nihilism right now. And it's also true concerning narcissism that in 2016, the selfie generation elected a reality TV star as president. Could you think of something more fitting for a culture growing more and more personally narcissistic? I can't. And yet there is a third result. You see, I'm convinced that people are longing for something much more. That they're unsatisfied with what this world is offering. And that maybe, just maybe, we're at the precipice of a spiritual awakening. I mean, it can't be an accident that for the first time in 150 years, the word joy is making a resurgence. <laughs> One more word to validate this particular point. If you search the phrase, Holy Spirit, from 1800 to 2008, you will not only notice its peak also being during the Great Awakening of the 1830s. But what else do you see? An interesting upswing in recent years. 
I really do believe, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a pastor, I really believe that the trends of the last few decades have created the framework. Yeah, it's true, the framework where we can become nihilistic or narcissistic, but it's also created a framework within our society that just might result in a powerful move of God's Spirit in America. Joy. Joy is such an interesting thing. Because joy, isn't it true that joy is so hard to define? And yet, it's so clearly seen. Like, what is joy? I know it when I see it, but I might struggle to actually define it, to qualify it. Is joy just extreme happiness? Or does joy transcend the emotional? And if that's the case, How do I get joy? In an earlier study uh, in our series through Philippians, I told you the story of of a gal named Erin Stoffel. Erin Stoffel, May 3rd, 2015, her, her husband, their three kids were taking a a walk on a Sunday evening across a bridge in a park when uh, a crazed man opened fire. It was a murder-suicide. He did not know the Stoffels at all. I went to Bible college with these folks. John was shot seven times. Their 11-year-old daughter, Olivia, also died on the bridge. Aaron was shot three times. The other two kids fled away to safety. Uh, It's really a radical tale. Well, a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of interviewing Aaron for the Outlaw Radio Show. That episode actually aired this past Friday. And during the interview, she told me a part of the story I didn't share previously, And I hadn't actually heard before. Apparently, in order for Aaron to attend the funeral, and because of the severity of her own gunshot wounds, her doctors decided it was best to take her to the funeral by ambulance and then wheelchair her to the front row because she couldn't walk. Well, as the funeral was progressing, to everyone's shock and dismay, As the worship band was playing John and Olivia's favorite worship songs, something amazing happened. From the front row, Aaron Stoffel stood up out of her wheelchair and with hands raised and through incredible sobs, proceeded to worship Jesus for his continued goodness. And subsequently, the entire audience stood behind her and joined. What is joy? Once again, it's hard to define but it's easy to identify. Let me tell you what joy looks like. Joy is what motivates a grieving woman who's experienced such an incredible tragedy as the loss of her husband and daughter who herself is in immense pain, who has no idea what her future looks like to passionately stand and raise her hands in the worship of Jesus. That, that's joy. To the world, Joy is a mystery. A reaction like Aaron, that's kind of unexplainable. And yet, maybe, just maybe, that's the whole point of joy. That joy is supposed to be otherworldly. That joy is to be radical, revolutionary, supernatural. That joy is designed to transcend what is normal. When we see joy manifest, 
when we see it in a situation like Aaron. We all understand, whether you're a Christian or you're not, that something is bubbling forth from the depths of a well much deeper than the physical. It's the only explanation. You see, joy, especially in the midst of grief and pain, joy intends to show out as the visible evidence of much larger spiritual realities within. Which explains why in writing to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul places such an emphasis on joy and our ability as Christians to rejoice regardless of whatever trial or circumstance we might be presently facing. There is no doubt, no question, that the Apostle Paul knew from personal experience the powerful testimony that his joy and his ability to rejoice in the midst of what? He's writing this letter from a Roman prison cell awaiting a trial before a certifiable wingnut named Nero, a madman who was sadistic and evil. And yet knowing, having no clue what his future held, knowing the fact that, that he might never see freedom again, chained around the clock to guards, Paul was still able to exude joy. He was still able to rejoice. And it was that that was making a difference. Like Aaron, people in Paul's world could see something supernatural. They could see his joy. And in light of his suffering, they wanted to know how that was even possible. Friend, I want you to know that when the world sees your joy, in the midst of suffering, they will ask the same questions. In studying Philippians chapter 3, commentator David Guzik, he made this provocative, in many ways, challenging observation about joy. This is, this is what he said, quote, It's a duty for the Christian to exude joy. A chronic lack of joy is simply a poor witness. Now, I'll admit, at first... When I heard this, I was a bit taken back by his statement. And yet, the more and more I've considered his point, the more I've actually come to agree. You know, it's interesting, but Satan. We don't talk a lot about Satan, and we shouldn't, because he's really not all that important. But in regards to analyzing his particular tactics, the truth is that he only really peddles knockoffs. Like Satan only peddles cheap imitations of the originals. Kind of like instead of buying Ray-Bans, you get stuck with Fay-Bans. I mean, they look the same, but not quite. You know, the Bible says that we'll be known by our love. So what does the world do? The world presents its own version of love, at a cheaper price. It's a knockoff. The Bible says in Christ that we'll have peace, a peace that would even surpass our own understanding. So what does the world do? The world promises an imitation of peace well, at a discount. Ironically, though, while the world offers knockoffs for love and for peace, can you think of a knockoff version for joy? I don't think so. I don't think the world can offer any substitute for this thing we call joy. Now the world will do everything it can to facilitate happiness, but it only offers pills 
aimed at numbing pain when life takes unexpected turns. It doesn't offer anything comparable to joy. So here's the grand challenge for this morning's message. If the world will know the Christian by your love one for another, well, I'm convinced the world will see Jesus when joy manifests from your life regardless of whatever circumstance you come to face. Our joy is our greatest witness because the world literally has no alternative. As we transition into chapter 3, I want to begin by unpacking why joy is such a powerful indicator of God's work in our lives by explaining how it is that we come to possess this radical type of joy. Like, where does joy come from? How do we get it? Where, where does it originate? And, and not to get the cart before the horse, but I'm just going to tell you so you can jot it down. We'll unpack it. Joy comes from God's grace manifesting through the indwelling of God's Spirit. But then, as we look at chapter 3, we'll also discuss what the greatest deterrent to our Christian joy actually is. <laughs> it's one word. Legalism. This is chapter 3 in a nutshell. Now, it's virtually impossible that we'll get to the second point, so we'll kind of leave that to next Sunday. Philippians 3, verse 1. 1a. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Finally. Well, the word finally in our English context, would seem to indicate that Paul is going to begin winding down his letter to the Philippians. You know, when pastors, you know, when they, find, when they, when they get to that point, they're like, well, finally, we're in conclusion. The audience is thinking, <laughs> fantastic, I'm hungry. We need to wrap this baby up. I'm glad you're catching on what I'm putting up. That's how we kind of perceive the word finally. Like, all right, Paul is finally going to wrap it up. We're reaching the end. Now, Paul is a preacher, so what's the truth? He's only halfway through with his sermon. Like, we are at the halfway point of his letter to the Philippians. And yet, this is not what the word finally in the Greek means. The word means at last. The idea, by Paul using this word finally, is that he's reiterating for the final time, the core message he's been trying to articulate. The message of chapters 1 and 2, he's like, finally, again, may I say it again for the last time so I can get on to something else. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. This is his message. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Greek, this word rejoice is chero, which means to be glad or to be well. In a very practical sense, we define rejoicing as what? As the act of demonstrating joy. Because the word here is a verb in the active tense, Paul isn't making a suggestion. He's, he's, not, he's not presenting rejoicing as kind of an option. It's, it's a directive. He's literally saying, my brethren, rejoice. You Rejoice. You demonstrate joy. Nah, let's be honest. You might find it difficult, and it would be only natural. Difficult to be glad 
in light of whatever present situation you find yourself facing. And that's honest. As a matter of fact, it might be a challenge for you to be glad in lieu of your current circumstances. And yet, neither situations nor circumstances that you face should be able to deter the gladness you can at least find where? In the Lord. Rejoice where? In circumstance? No. In situation? No. In relationships? No. Rejoice in what? Rejoice in Jesus. You see, a relationship with Jesus is the basis for joy. Without it, joy is impossible. Now, what's interesting about this Greek word chero for rejoicing is that it is very, very similar in the Greek to the word charis. Charis, by the way, we translate into English as grace. In addition to grace meaning unmerited favor, Strong's defines this Greek word charis as that which affords joy. Grace affords joy. Aside from joy being based in a relationship with Jesus, joy is fundamentally designed to manifest from your life as you continually experience the grace of God. Joy is what's yielded from the experience of God's grace, which is what? The fact that he loves you in spite of you and not because of you. That he loves you based on the work that Jesus did and not the work you do. That it's a free gift to be received, not something to be earned. That it's maintenance is found in a relationship with Jesus, not the things that I do. It's freely given and freely maintained, God's grace. It's that reality that yields joy, or at least it should. In actuality, <laughs> this is why we've titled our series through Paul's letter to the Philippians, Enjoying Grace. You can't have joy without grace. Grace doesn't exist without joy. You see, God's grace not only changes everything, but because grace yields joy, it subsequently changes the way we experience everything. Now, let me unpack that for just a minute. Not only does grace change everything as it pertains to my relationship with God, and since I don't have to earn anything, I've been given everything, and not only does grace change how then I relate to those around me, how can I be bigoted, how can, I, how can I see myself as being better than? How can I be judgmental of those around me when our basis with God is identical, having nothing to do with me or you, but Jesus, right? Jesus is that strand that not just binds us together, but makes us all equal. The ground at the foot of the cross is level, friend. So not only does grace change everything as it pertains to my relationship with God and my relationship with man, but grace then changes me and how I interact, how I experience the world around me. Let me explain why this is the case. It is absolutely possible to possess joy, regardless of environment, because of the eternal and unchanging reality that you've been extended the grace of God. If you need a reason to have joy or to rejoice, no matter what's going on around you, it's the fact that this has been affected by Jesus that changes how I interact with all of this. It places everything else into a context. This is why Paul says specifically, rejoice 
in the Lord. It's as simple as that. The very reality of Jesus and the sacrifice that Jesus made on Calvary to pay for your sins and for mine so that we could be saved, that simple truth should be more than enough for you to be able to rejoice, to possess joy, to allow joy to exude from your life. You see, God's amazing grace establishes for us a much deeper and unwavering basis for joy and rejoicing. The present life that's been afforded to you by Christ, it should place all earthly trial, struggle, difficulty, circumstance into a proper context. In fact, it's such a context that enabled Paul who is sitting in a prison cell, to not only rejoice, but then to say, hey, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm good either way. None of this robs me of that. And it's this that gives me an identity. It's this that gives me an eternity. It's this that gives me a reward. It's this that makes me who I am. So none of this matters. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. No temporal hardship had the power to rob Paul of his eternal perspective and his joy. Now, let me very quickly add kind of a caveat to all this. Please note that Paul isn't commanding you. It doesn't say, finally, my brethren, be happy in the Lord. He doesn't say to be happy. Now, it's true that joy, joy can yield happiness. It often does. But the reality is that this thing that we refer to as joy, it transcends the emotional. And here's why. By springing forth from the spiritual. Think of it this way. While we obviously understand that joy is a state of being, to be glad, that's what it means, as opposed to being an emotion, feeling glad, or an action, doing gladness, if such a thing could be done. But we should ask, where then does joy originate? Is joy something that magically occurs? Like love, I get struck with love from Cupid's era, right? I'm walking along and boom, I just out of the blue, I wasn't ready for it, wasn't looking for it, it just zapped me. Like does joy happen like that? We get to just get struck with it. It's accidental, it's random, magic. Or does it operate like an epiphany? Like at some point in the, in the course of my daily grind, like I just get this boom, light bulb just goes off. And I'm like, wow, I've got joy. Is joy just a personality trait? Or a decision of the will? Like is joy something that we choose to do? I don't believe that any of these things is where joy originates from. I don't think it comes from any of it. Consider, if joy, I'm gonna get all logical on you, so follow me, thinking caps. If joy is the manifestation of grace, by definition, and grace is a gift that's been given through Jesus by God that we receive, right? We can't earn it or manufacture it or maintain it, right? So it's a manifestation of grace. Grace is a gift. 
then it's only logical that joy must also be a gift imparted by God. The reality is joy. Joy is much more than an emotion. And here's why. Joy, according to the Scriptures, is a direct manifestation of the Holy Spirit. I'll give you a few examples. Galatians 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit, or what the Spirit yields from your life, what's produced by the Spirit in your life, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and there's a list. Romans 15, 13. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. And you became followers of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 13, verse 52, Luke says of the disciples in Perga, following Paul's departure, that they were, quote, filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You see, what the Bible tells us is that joy and the indwelling Holy Spirit come hand in hand. You you don't have one without the other, which subsequently makes joy then something completely intrinsic to Christians which is why it's such a powerful witness of God's work in someone's life to the world that doesn't have it. See how this works? <laughs> Can't believe I'm going to pull out this reference, but I will. That fact, even Urban Dictionary gets. If you, if you go to Urban Dictionary and look up the word joy, there's only two definitions. Either joy is the name of a very kind woman, or... No doubt, Urban Dictionary defines joy as a gift of the Holy Spirit. Like our collective urban, urban world, thinking about joy, concludes it's either a woman or a gift of God. It's kind of one of those dynamics, right, where people have a hard time defining it. Now, before I take that idea any further, I do want to explain why it's so dangerous when we allow joy to be relegated to only the emotional plane. So so the best people end up doing is saying that, that, well, joy is like really extreme happiness. Like, Like we place joy and happiness on, joy is an emotion. That is a dangerous thing, and I'll explain it. If joy, being a fruit of the Spirit, ends up being nothing more than the emotion of happiness, then subsequently, the very real emotions of sadness, sorrow, or depression end up being seen as evidence of what? A spiritual problem. If the fruit of the Spirit is joy, and joy produces happiness, if I am sorrowful or depressed or bummed out, it must be a spiritual issue. Not true. Aside from the fact that this convolution will hyper-spiritualize emotions that it shouldn't, most tragically, when this happens, church life ends up being relegated to the superficial. Let me explain that. Instead of people coming to church and being real and honest about the things they're emotionally dealing with, People do this. They put on their happy-go-lucky Jesus glow face out of fear 
that they might be perceived as less spiritual if they're honest. <laughs> and let me prove that we're all guilty of this by asking one question. When was the last time someone came up to you at church and asked, how you doing, brother? And your response was this, truthfully, life sucks, man. Like right now, it's terrible. And frankly, I'm a bit depressed about it. Like when was the last time that was your response at church? I don't think I'm going out on a limb by saying you've probably never said that. Now, I understand that it's simply easier to say, I'm good, man. Or to say, bro, I'm blessed. Or to throw out like a, a Dave Ramsey line. Well, I'm better than I deserve. Like it's easier to say those things, right? Like you don't want to unload on someone that's just trying to be friendly. And on a side note, if you don't want an honest answer or don't want to take the time to listen to an honest answer, don't ask someone how they're doing. Like, if you're not willing to actually take a, take a minute and listen to them, don't ask them. Don't be disingenuous. Drives me nuts. Hey, man, how you doing? As you make your... I have a lot I'd like to say, but you just didn't give me a moment. Really dealing with some things, but, but you didn't care. Like, don't ask if you, if you don't care. And yet, if we're being forthcoming... One of the reasons that we shy away from full transparency, if we're going to be honest, is that you don't want your emotional struggle to be judged as a spiritual one. And that happens all the time in the Christian world, doesn't it? Sadly, it's this misunderstanding of the fundamental difference between the emotional and the spiritual that creates a climate in a church where it's just safer to be fake than to be real. Never forget, the fruit of the Spirit is joy, not emotional merriment. How quickly we forget that the Bible says that there is a time to, to weep and to mourn, that the Bible's honest that good people can struggle with depression, and that it's only natural that you can wake up on the wrong side of the bed or simply find yourself in a funk because the two-year-old's killing you. David, King David, was often troubled and in despair. Elijah was discouraged and weary. Job suffered loss, find himself paralyzed by it. Moses was grit with bouts of inadequacy and heartache. Jeremiah struggled with loneliness and insecurities. In actuality, Isaiah 53.3 describes Jesus as being, quote, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Sometime this week, do your own Bible search for, for these words downcast, brokenhearted, troubled, miserable, despairing, mourning. They're all over the Bible. You see, hopelessness and emotional struggles, the Bible is honest about them, and never once are they ever presented as being emblematic of a spiritual problem. And yet, this is what's amazing about joy transcending the emotional and why it's important. You see, even if you're struggling through such emotions, if joy is something that transcends the emotional, check this out, if you're dealing with really difficult emotions, you can still have joy. 
They're not the same. You see, if joy isn't based in the circumstantial or the emotional or the physical and instead flows from the spiritual, it is very possible for you to still possess joy and even for that matter rejoice even when you're feeling blue or you're depressed. Next time you come to church and someone genuinely asks, how are you doing, brother? The more honest and biblical response would be to say, truthfully, tired, I'm worn out, I'm a bit uncertain about how things are going right now. Life stinks. But you know, I'm glad God's love never fails, and I'm still filled with his spirit, and I'm not alone in the struggle. That is being honest, and it's being real. Since joy comes from God's grace and his spirit, friend, nothing can rob you of the joy that God has given. Now, in closing, and I'm literally going to close, I have one more important application with these things in mind. It's simply inconsistent. This is going to be a heavy, a heavy statement. It's simply inconsistent, and for that matter, a poor witness for a person who's experienced God's grace and who has been filled with his spirit to be deeply miserable and constantly sour. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. You see, because joy manifests in your life through a work of God's spirit, yielded by grace afforded in Jesus, a lack of joy, or for that matter, the inability to rejoice in Jesus alone. That's an indicator of one of two things. If you don't have joy or the ability to rejoice, either you've, ex either you've never experienced God's grace and you've never been filled with his spirit, or you've lost sight of his grace and are failing to rely on his spirit. And that's the application for this morning for the believers. If you find yourself in this dynamic, consider it. Now, if the, if the latter is you, and you thirst for more than this world can offer, if you find yourself in that, that just wicked cycle of pursuing what I think will make me happy, being happy, having that happiness turn to misery, to then pursue another thing to make me happy, only to get that happiness and have it turn to misery. So I pursue, if you're tired of that terrible rut, if you think there's gotta be more to life than just this, I want you to know there is. God's grace not only changes everything, but it's the indwelling of God's spirit, the spirit of Jesus in your heart that will transform how you experience everything. Why settle for a knockoff when you can have the original and it's free? In John 7, we read that on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this caveat. But this Jesus spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Living water made available to us by believing in Jesus and being filled with his Holy Spirit. But I say, 
if you're a miserable Christian. Is not the incredible grace that God has already demonstrated to you. And that while you were a sinner, Christ died not only to save you from your sin, but to fill you with his spirit. Is that reality not amazing enough, incredible enough, that it shouldn't stir you up from your sorrow or or raise you up through despair or move you out of pain and grief or even from your depression, not enough to stir you to your feet to demonstrate joy? Don't you have enough to be joyful and to rejoice and to worship? As Paul so opens Philippians 3, may I repeat and close with just these words. Finally, my brethren, There's a tenderness there, isn't it? My amigos, my compadres, my friends and family. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And so, Father, that's what we ask.